Football is around the corner, and we are ramping it up over here on the Ringer NFL feed in the month of August. Every week, Ben Solak and I will be bringing you not one, but two extra point takens. That's right. Double the trouble as we predict, debate, and analyze our way through camp and the preseason every Monday and Friday. But that is not all. Steven Ruiz and I will be coming to you every Wednesday. We'll talk about everything in the world of the NFL. And who knows? Maybe Steven will even have something nice to say about your favorite squad. Though, frankly, I wouldn't count on it. Subscribe to The Ringer NFL Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow The Ringer NFL on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Ringer NFL. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. David? Yes? Are you sitting down? Yeah, always, almost, yeah. Okay, good. Because I want to make sure you're sitting down for some news from the sports media world. Ooh. There is a new cast of NBA Countdown. Oh, oh. Whoa, yeah. Like the first Robin of spring, only it's in the late summer. ESPN is once again changing the cast of its embattled NBA pregame show. Embattled, all right. Do you know what the mandatory word is you use in a press release when you change the cast of a pregame show? Like the, like the, like the positive spin? Yeah. Um, what was it, like new look? Uh, um, uh, fresh uh, voices. Um, <laughs> uh, a new Love excitement. It. New, 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 bringing uh, uh, new levels of excitement to the product. Uh, fan engagement. I don't know what is it. All that is correct, but in this case, ESPN is reimagining. Oh, how did NBA I miss that? countdown? Mm-hmm. It's not like we got rid of some people and we brought some other people on. We're reimagining the whole thing. So change number one, there is no more greening. ESPN has decided there's a new rule that you can only be on the air 23 hours a day. (laughs) Greening needed a blow, so he's being replaced by Malika Andrews. Okay. And here's a stat I got from Sports Media Watch. Malika Andrews is the sixth host that NBA Countdown has had in the last eight years. Oh, wow. If you need to know... What kind of changes have been wrought on that program? Just the host. I mean, we're not talking about all the other chairs. Just no, like the, just the, the, the center the, square here. The point guard. Yes, the center yeah. square. The John Davidson character, if we're doing Hollywood squares here. Six different hosts in eight years. The show wow. is also adding Bob Myers, former Warriors president and GM. Mm-hmm. And Stephen A. and Michael Wilbon will be returning. Okay. So... Just for a little side-by-side here, ESPN has changed the cast of NBA Countdown 9,000 times. And in that same span, Turner's Inside the NBA has added Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. One of those shows is a wild success. It's called the best studio show in television, and the other is NBA Countdown. Yeah. I was thinking about this today as they rejigger yet another time. Reimagine, Brian. Please. Reimagine, excuse me, got the verb there wrong. What do you need in this day and age for a studio show to be 
I don't even good's the right word. Watchable, something you want to have on. Yeah. You need somebody with authority, I think. Somebody whose opinion you care about 20% more than you care about people talking on Twitter. Yes. Because you can get a yeah, million Ideally, opinions. yes. <laughs> Go on. And then I think there's some element of just surprise. Like, I'm going to turn this on. It's going to be something other than a former NFL player staring into the camera and delivering rehearsed talking points. Do you mean the pick is a surprise or the takes are a surprise? Just saying something that's a surprise or like yeah. busting of chops with somebody else on the set that's a surprise and that's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think danger might be the wrong word for a sports studio show, but just something that feels like this wasn't scripted. Yeah. And this has some feeling of real life in it. Well, you know, for better or worse, that's what we we talked about that a lot. When we were talking about Mark Jackson and, and Jeff Van Gundy in the booth. And obviously, they, you know, they've just announced uh, that they're do that that J.J. Reddick and, and uh, Richard Jefferson are, are going to both uh, going to be sharing booth space as a lead announced team on on ESPN, which I think there will yeah. be some some uh, uh, some level of chop busting going on uh, in that booth. <laughs> and that was, I'm sure, part of the allure. Um yeah, no, I, I, danger is not the right word, but it is. It's the sort of electricity that is adjacent to danger, you know, that that, that, that something interesting might happen. It's I think the, one of the most interesting things to me about this lineup, and again, we're, you know, very inside here, but um, is, you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody or most people listening to this listen to Stephen A. Smith on, on our boss, Bill Simmons podcast, and he was echoing the thing that you hear from Bill and from a million other people who are involved or as watchers of the show, which is they don't have enough time to talk. Right. And that and and uh, who knows if they'll be reimagining the runtime of the show or the, you know, the amount of time they have to talk. About. I, I, have, I can't imagine that's in the cards or that wouldn't have, or that would have been the top line above all the, the new reimagined talent. Um, so, you know, that's that to me is, is sort of shocking. But what else do you think they need besides just the, the inform the, the informed opinions and the and the electricity, the dangerous electricity? So we got no, but we got three things there. We got authority. We've got uncertainty, suspense, mm-hmm. something, something sort of you're not expecting to see. And then the third thing, which you put your finger on, which is something that approximates normal human conversation, <laughs> yeah, rather than the talking point layup line, yeah, that characterizes the show. And remember, last year's version of Countdown for those scoring at home was much better in the actual conversation doing part than the previous version where people were talking for like 4.9 seconds and then would stop and the next person would talk and then they just go to a commercial. Right. It would never have any kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think if you get those three elements, you've got something, but it's hard. Um, I think, you know, unstructured conversation is hard because one, you're relying on your talent to make that happen and make that compelling Two, you're probably sacrificing ad time. That's why ESPNs is so, you know, been so bad is because they just don't, they're not willing to, to say, Hey, here's some runway. They're like, say something and we got to get to a commercial. Yeah. Right. We're selling ads here. We need to make our, we need to make our money here rather than let you guys have some runway. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of this is the Stephen A part coming back because I think I used this metaphor on you before with Stephen A last year the show was better it was way better than the year the pre the previous year but it really was James Harden and the Rockets oh <laughs> like, yeah Stephen A's like got the ball and then everybody else is doing the TV equivalent of waiting in the corner to see if they can shoot a three uh-huh you could just see it on the set everybody's looking over there and it's like do I should I talk now Mm-hmm. Should I jump in here or are we just letting him go? And to me, you can replace all the other cast members and you basically still have the same format, which is it's Stephen A's show and everybody's looking over there going, what do I do here? Yeah. Am I going to get in an argument with him like on first take? Or am I just going to be like, okay, I'm going to let him do his thing and then I'll jump in here for a few seconds after he's done. Yeah, I mean, it's a much it's a, it's a dicier proposition on this show than it is on first take because there's not the built-in response, 
right? I mean, you can go at Stephen A. Smith and kind of say, well, I'm just playing the game on first take, you know, and and because they'll have time to make his to, to defend himself, but not potentially on this show. I don't know, man. It'll be it'll be interesting. I like I mean, I like everybody they have lined up. Uh, I mean, Bob Myers is a little bit of a question mark, but people seem to think he's going to do fine. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What, what What is I mean, talking about the runway, I mean, is there any reason for to think that they're going to get any? Well, you know what they say in television, the 94th time is the charm. nervous laughter from david coming up on today's pod best-selling author james andrew miller joins us to discuss espn's big gambling deal why did they do it now and what does it tell us about the state of the company plus the hollywood reporter incident cops versus a free press in kansas the old golfers still got it the gentle art of obit sweetening and some news from denmark All of that and much more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, and producer Erica Cervantes here. David will be back in one sec, but first let's bring on James Andrew Miller. Jim is the guy who wrote the book on ESPN and CAA and HBO. He has great perspective on ESPN past and present. He's the guy I always look forward to talking about this stuff with. And this time there's a lot of stuff. Jim, welcome to the Press Box. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So last week ESPN announced a 10-year, $2 billion deal with Penn Entertainment. Penn is going to rebrand their betting app as ESPN Bet. What was your reaction when you saw that news? I thought immediately back to 2019 when Bob Iger said they really weren't interested in gambling. Um, that's an easy place to to go to because it seemed so certain and it just shows how quickly this ESPN story is moving. It's moving very quickly. It's not moving toward definitive answers, mind you, but the marketplace is changing. The numbers are changing. And I think the Disney, the Disney desire to do something with ESPN is changing fast. And uh, look, it's it's great if you're if you're Dave Portnoy, um, but <laughs> obviously people even inside ESPN were somewhat surprised by it. So let's go to back to Iger for a second. His message all along has been, we're in no rush to sign a deal like this, no rush to sign a deal like this, and then all of a sudden they do. Why now? Well, it was even more, it was, it was beyond we're in no rush. It's something that, I think he was very clear about that they weren't sure that they wanted to connect to the Disney brand. Then they had obviously some interaction with DraftKings and whatever. Now they have to give up some of that or all of it to to do this current deal, which is going to cost them opportunities on the upside. Personally, I don't think it's that great a deal um, for them. It's not going to wind up being that much money and they're cutting themselves off from other opportunities. But the point is that they had a 180 degree turn, a change of opinion. And um, I think that just shows the lack. I don't want to use the word desperation, but I think that clearly everything is on the table now. And money is important because of the big deals they've signed, the NBA deal coming up, that kind of stuff, even if, as you say, it's not that much money. Well, yeah, but I mean, look, the big story is the big story we've been talking about for years, right? Um, used to be 100 million homes paying eight bucks a month. And now they're down to maybe 72 or 73. That's a, that's a lot of money. And the erosion is happening, happening quicker than people thought. So the collapse of the TV bundle, which everybody used to complain about, it turns out that it was the golden goose that everybody wishes never went away. <laughs> and that we have found no way to replace as of yet. So if, Part of this question is why now? The second part is why with Penn Entertainment in particular? Puck's Matt Bellany, who does a podcast with us called Penn and also ran uh, down market operations at Disney, really shouldn't be in business with a company like Penn, especially on this scale. What do you make of ESPN doing it with them rather than FanDuel, Disclosure Ringer Partner, or DraftKings or, or a bigger company? Well, I think that was that was part of the surprise for people because 
you know, they they did have connections to those companies. And quite frankly, their pedigrees are a, a little bit stronger. For, and for a company like Disney that pays attention to that, you probably couldn't have gotten a lot of people to guess that this would have happened um, even, you know, six months ago. So I think that what's going on right now, I mean, $2 billion is a nice number to throw out there, but it's spread out over 10 years. and they're going to have to do some dividing of that. They also cut off their their other relationships. So I, I, I'm just, I'm with the people who are very surprised. Um, and I think it sounded, I don't want to say it sounds like a fire sale going on, but this doesn't, this doesn't reek of a element that's part of a grander strategic plan. It seems like a one-off, almost done in haste, and uh, with a partner that you would never have expected them to be in business with. As you've listened to Bob Iger talk about ESPN over the last few months, he's talked about wanting a strategic partner to buy in, talked about linear television and Disney's linear assets generally. Do you detect a grand strategic vision for the network? Well, I don't. And I think Bob is looking for one. But the interesting thing is, look, if Bob Iger had never come back, if like Bob Chapik had been a tremendous success story or whatever, or just managed to stay on the job, we'd all be saying, look at the mess that ESPN is in. If only Bob Iger was still in charge, he would have figured all this out. He would have had a plan. He would have done this and he would have done that. It turns out this conundrum that ESPN is facing is actually really, really difficult to navigate. It's financial, it's cultural, it involves the behavior of consumers and it involves a lot of their competitors too, who have recently been able to do certain things that they weren't able to do years ago. And I believe that the fact that Iger's in charge and he's having an interview like he did on CNBC, where he's looking for a strategic partner, but doesn't quite know who that is or what value proposition that strategic partner needs to bring to ESPN. It's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, Matt Bellany, you know, reported that, uh, that, that Tom and Kevin are coming back and, uh, maybe they'll give him some help. But look, this is stuff that Jimmy Pataro spends 80% of his time trying to figure out, um, including the ultimate question, which is whether or not ESPN is eventually going to just go straight D to C, which is something that you would have never thought about, but is clearly not only if, but when. ESPN itself, content-wise, has never been averse to talking a little gambling, Where whether it's you know Chris Berman in the Swami outfit or Chris <laughs> Felica later on game day. And then, of course, lately they've had gambling-specific shows in various guises. Did you ever get a feeling about how people inside that network felt about gambling or felt about a partnership like this one? Yeah, I think that they... Look, it used to be a very risque kind of big to do when Berman would mention those things. You know, it was kind of like the little subtle jokes that Al Michaels would do on Sunday Night Football sometimes about the spread, which were just delicious and artfully done. But I think that, look, you've had a sliding scale. It moved slow at the beginning. It's then there were some partnerships and then things became legal and there was some movement, but now instead of going 20 or 30 miles an hour, now they're going 60. Now they, now, now they're all in. And so I think the hope is that this is going to somehow be another revenue stream that's going to make up for some of the revenue streams that they're lost. I don't think there's enough money in it, but, um, we'll see. People are shocked though. I think people are shocked, particularly people who have been there for, you know, 10 years and longer. That they never thought this day would come. To, to make a deal like this. Yeah. You and I have been covering ESPN for a long time. Even I am shocked by the news vortex <laughs> that has been ESPN over the last two or three months. We mentioned a couple of stories. There have been the layoffs, strategic partner talk. You mentioned the countdown for direct-to-consumer, the NBA deal coming up, the pen deal now. You could throw Jimmy Pataro having been mentioned from time to time as a possible successor to Iger into that mix for people whose minds have been blown by that sheer amount of news how should we think of the state of espn 
as a company right now? I think that it's fair to say, look, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but think of think of the cable bundle as like a cancer inside the ESPN organization. And what's going on right now with this gambling deal, the layoffs and other things, it's almost like ESPN is receiving a stem cell transplant, just to push the metaphor a little bit more, as we watch. Because it is it is needing to change in certain ways. I mean, they're still spending money. They've been very aggressive, and they'll be aggressive about the NBA deal. But the old days are clearly gone. And I think more than anything, boy, when Jeff Van Gundy got voted off the island, I don't know about you, Brian, but everybody I talked to inside ESPN, that was like, I mean, there are layoffs, and there have been three other significant layoffs in ESPN's history over the past decade. But somehow, losing Jeff Van Gundy was a gut punch to a lot of ESPNers. And and that, more than anything, made them sit up and say, okay, wait a second. You know, it's not the ESPN that we grew up with, and things are really changing. And as a result, we're not sure what this place is going to look like, you know, three years out, five years out. And, and that's, that's a lot to handle for people inside the company. It's also a lot to handle for Wall Street as they're trying to figure out what is going on because ESPN for so many years made so much money. I mean, Marvel and Pixar, they were bought with ESPN money, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you look at 2012 to 2018, that is, I mean, they were pulling in profits that were in the billions of dollars, and it was just extraordinary, even before that. So I think we're really looking at a at a company, at a network specifically, ESPN, where we don't really know what the future is. You put your finger on it there so nicely, because you and I have seen a lot of layoffs at ESPN before. You and I have seen this anxiety of, I'm going to lose my job if I work there, or a friend of mine, a person I really respect is going to lose their job. I don't know if I've ever seen the specific anxiety, at least as acutely, that I don't know what ESPN is going to be in two or three years' time. I just don't know what this company is going to look like. And that, to me, has a real big effect on morale inside the building that's very, very different than just mere layoffs. Well, not only that, but when you think about the geography of it all, for many, many years, right? Almost since 1979, but certainly since, let's say, the, the mid-80s, the late 80s, people were willing to move to Bristol, Connecticut, in the middle of nowhere, raise their kids there because it was a secure place. In fact, not only was it a secure place, it was a rocket ship. And so you had this feeling of being part of something that is going to just continue to build and build, and you're making a commitment it's not like you're living in Manhattan. You could switch from, you know, Rockefeller Center to West 57th Street or something, you know, NBC to CBS or whatever. This was this was more than that. ESPN has always been, you know, that bigger commitment because of where it is. And now you have people who, you know, got laid off. They have kids in school. They're they're in the middle of nowhere. It's tough to get a job, and it's fundamentally a different place. I was on campus this summer doing some podcast interviews and just looking around, I'm like, God, this place looks so big given the way the company's changed, given how many fewer studio shows they're doing and studio shows specifically out of Bristol that they're doing. Do you ever think that could be in the card someday that they just reevaluate the whole idea of having a giant campus in Bristol, Connecticut? I don't know because the truth is to replace that infrastructure. I mean, the satellite farm alone, I mean, I guess there's all sorts of new technologies that are emerging, but the infrastructure, uh, I mean, look, the, the radio, radio has almost been, you know, basically farmed out. There used to be, I mean, you used to walk through the halls of ESPN and I mean, every booth was crowded. Everybody was bustling. You go to the cafeteria and the lines were long. And I mean, you know, the place had 6,000 employees. Um, that is not the case now. Seven thousand at one point, I believe, um, and that is not the case. I got I got the same feeling last time I was there that that you had. Um, it's just look. I mean, it's still impressive as hell. And if you think about the money that they spent to get this new NFL deal, which is the best schedule and the best deal they've ever had, and 
the money they spend on college football, the money that they're about to spend on the NBA. It's not like there's a, you know, going out of business sign on the, on the door, but it is a, it is a, an incredible disparity between what it was just a couple of years ago and what it is now. So the case for ESPN would be starting, we would start with some of those rights deals. Got a good NFL deal, got a couple of Super Bowls on the way, the first in network's history, got all of SEC football starting next year, big rights packages, things like that. And then the case against ESPN would be they haven't solved the unsolvable problem of the cable bundle that you mentioned earlier. Replacing the, the cable bundle and and somehow finding that secure revenue stream that they used to have. Um, that's a problem. I mean, look, they're very good at spending money recently. <laughs> I think they need to figure out, and that's what Bob and Kevin and Tom and Jimmy are doing, is how to get a dedicated, reliable, significant source of revenue to replace that 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 cable bundle. Uh, and that's going to be that's going to be far trickier than than anyone imagined. All right, James Andrew Miller. Those guys have all the fun. Is still the best book written about ESPN. Check out oh, his other, check out his other books, Tinder Tinder Box. I can say that, and Powerhouse too. Jim, thanks for coming on the press box. Thank you, Brian. Coming up in thirty seconds, a Hollywood writer's demands. Should this have been an email? But first, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. Today's runner-up, David, comes to us from Mitchell Tyler. Did you happen to see the video of Vivek Ramaswamy performing Eminem's Lose Yourself at the Iowa State Fair over the weekend? <laughs> I've been a little bit offline, largely offline, but I, I saw enough to know that it happened. I have not, not watched it, no. First of all, lucky you uh, for being offline for any Iowa State Fair content, particularly this. But you need to know this. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, well, hip-hop had a great first 50 years. <laughs> Thanks to Mitchell for that one. This week's winner comes from our friend Chris Sullentrop. There was a proposed cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, a topic oh, yeah. we have studiously not covered here at the Press Box. The cage fight was apparently put on hold when Musk stunningly tweeted that he was getting an MRI of his neck and upper back and may need surgery. Some of the jokes that came out of that announcement, my girlfriend is 100% real, she just lives in Canada. <laughs> You'll appreciate this one, David. Elon just started watching WWE and is using the classic heel trope of faking a neck injury to avoid a match. Yes. I don't know if anyone made this, but I think the right joke is this one. Elon Musk is out six to eight weeks, but will be back for the layoffs. <laughs> See, there you go. Uh, that's good. If you don't mind us returning to our studious non-coverage of the story, thank you and congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, in the notebook dump. Did you see this Hollywood reporter story that people on Twitter were buzzing about? Wait, which one? Well, it's an interesting story because it, unearths this whole subculture of Hollywood reporting that you and I are perhaps not intimately familiar with. Uh-huh. Charlotte Klein wrote about it in Vanity Fair. I always like reading her stuff. Uh, Scott Feinberg writes for The Hollywood Reporter. He has a podcast. His job is that he is an awards pundit. So there's this whole subculture, whole mm -hmm. tier of journalism devoted, yeah. devoted to awards punditry. Sure. Which is interesting, right? In a way, it resembles the whole change that was visited upon sports writing. You know, when we were kids, somebody says, I'm an NFL draft analyst. You're like, wow, what a weird nerd you are. Now everybody's an NFL draft analyst. Same thing with awards punditry. But the funny thing about that is every time we see those television ratings, it seems like people are less and less interested in the Oscars, in the Emmys. But there's this whole robust awards media complex mm -hmm. that's still going strong. Yeah. It's a little bit like when the ratings for cable news were falling, but Gabe Sherman 
had a cover story in New York Magazine every other week on what was going on at Fox or MSNBC. Yeah. You're like, wow, well, something is flourishing here. Yes. I mean, there are so, you know, there are fewer and fewer people watching TV, but the people watching TV are a very discernible group for, you know, the ad buyers of the world. Yeah. And I think that especially applies to movies. So Feinberg sent a note to the studios and some PR people saying he wants to see the big movies first. He writes in this email that is uh, quoted by Charlotte Klein. As you plan the rollout of your films, I would like to respectfully ask that you not show films to any of my fellow awards pundits before you show them to me. Even if that person represents himself or herself to you as a, a potential reviewer of it, B, needing to see the film in order to be part of decisions about covers, or C, really anything else. In the email, Charlotte Clyde writes, Feinberg went on to imply that there would be repercussions for studios that continued to widely distribute invitations to screenings and that, quote, moving forward, the Hollywood Reporter may take that into consideration during the booking of roundtables, podcasts, and other coverage. <laughs> Roundtables being those things they do at award season where it's like Brad Pitt and Liam Neeson and Pedro Pascual sitting there just talking movies. Mm -hmm. One of those things I never actually watch, but I'm just amused and delighted by the presence of. Yes. Just an award season kind of thing. Everybody just getting together, talking movies. Mm -hmm. The Avengers of Reassembled. Just chopping it up. Yeah. Just chopping it up. So there's a couple of interesting things here. What he's talking about, as you see, is that there's some different types of movie covering people that are given different priority. It sounds like to me anyway, mm -hmm. for screenings, there's the awards pundits. And then there's people that are reviewing a movie mm -hmm. or seeing a movie way in advance to make a decision about a magazine cover to the extent that that is still a thing. Yeah. And he's saying, if any, I think if any of these people who are actually awards pundits are representing themselves as a critic or a magazine cover decider. That's no good. Yeah. They should not be seeing the movie before me. Mm -hmm. Now this got some tittering, this whole story and the email that he sent out, which somebody from Penske media, which runs the Hollywood reporter admitted was inartfully worded. And you know, I love, media apologies that sound like the people you cover. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was reading this story today, I'm like, didn't this happen probably all the time with journalists in entertainment? Mm -hmm. Aren't you always jockeying to see the thing first? Aren't you always jockeying to get the exclusive, the first interview, the magazine cover? How many, how many interviews do we see build exclusive that aren't even exclusives? with an actor or a director. I mean, isn't, isn't this just a version, I guess, minus the implied threat about the round tables and stuff, but isn't this just the kind of jockeying that goes on all the time? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I was thinking the whole time is that this is an incredible, this is a ridiculous and problematic and, and, you know, sort of low key offensive letter to send out. And I can understand the response it gets. Um, because I think when you hear about it in a vacuum, it does feel like this guy's trying to wield power in a way, well, in a vacuum that no one else is, right? But it also seems like so ridiculous that he would be asking for this that you wonder, well, like, not would, not isn't, but, but couldn't every other person that he's implicitly naming in that letter write the same letter? You know, just say, like, I, I humbly request that I get to see everything first, actually, and uh, yeah. not my, uh, these other people. And if and if you if you think about it, like you just you know, like the question you just posed, like doesn't this happen all the time? It could be that everybody's sending this letter, but it just seems like, I mean, I, I don't really know what the benefit is from this, unless the power that you the, the roundtable power that you wield is so significant that you can ice everybody else out. But it's also. I mean, is is what he's asking that he get and be invited that he be invited to the first viewing? That if anybody gets a super advanced screener, he might get that as well. But he's not asking to have a unique like 
private viewing of every single thing that comes out, right? No, I think I think I, in the ideal thing that he's asking for is it's like a 30-way tie between him and all these other people. Right. That other people are figuring out ways to see this early by making magazine cover decisions or I need to see this early for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I think, and again, this is not my world, but if I'm reading this correctly, he's saying, I just don't want them to be before me. Yeah. Really, I just, right. I just hate to find out. <laughs> I just hate to find out, you know, secondhand that I was not, that I, that yeah. I missed the screening. Right, yeah. But I think you're right. Like the competitors in that world, not just the awards pundit competitors, but all the competitors who are jockeying for position, they're not being like, you know what? If you just show it to Scott Feinberg first, that's fine. Yeah. We're, we're happy to wait our turn. And see it up and see it a couple of weeks later. I don't I don't think they're thinking that. <laughs> Just I think they're I think they're probably exactly in the same boat. It's where you get into the we may take that into consideration part. Yeah. For booking these things. But again, like Bellany was was on Pressbox the other day talking about this and talking about all the negotiations with the stars uh-huh. that he was doing. And you know, there's there's a lot of things. If they're not spelled out, they're implied. You know, we're gonna take these beautiful pictures of you for the cover of the magazine, and you are going to put those beautiful pictures on social media and link to the story, mm-hmm. right? And all these other things. And this is, you know, again, it's it, it feels like it's one of those stories where it's something that everybody is uncomfortable with. Yeah. Suddenly bursts into the public eye for mm-hmm. just a second in some form. So what people are recoiling at is this actual thing, but also everything else. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's what journalists are really good at. They love to recoil when they see just a little bit of themselves. Yep. In a story. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. We've got news from Kansas. This is a story that has gotten a lot of attention. I want to take you to Marion County, Kansas, David. My Googling skills are up to par. Marion County is central east Kansas, I think you'd call it. Oh, one of the finer counties. One Kansas. of the finer one of one of the official Kansas County of the press box, as it were. Though we may need to reconsider that by the end of this story. There's a paper in Marion County, Kansas called The Record. It's got a circulation of 4,000. Last Friday, according to a New York Times story by Stephen Lee Myers and Ben Mullen, police raided the office of the paper and took computers, servers, and cell phones. They searched the owner's home. Myers and Mullen would write that the searches appeared to be linked to an investigation into how a document containing information about a local restaurateur found its way to the local newspaper and whether the restaurant owner's privacy was violated in the process. So Eric Meyer is the editor of the paper, His dad was the editor of the paper previously. He went off and had a journalism career elsewhere, was into teaching, and then came back home. His family bought the paper, and now he edits it. And this is what led to this whole kerfuffle, to use an only in journalism word. There was a meet and greet, according to the Times, at a local restaurant with a congressman. The restaurateur threw out Eric Meyer and one of his reporters from the event. The Marion County Record published a story about being thrown out of the event. And then the paper got a Facebook message that contained a letter from the Kansas Department of Revenue about the restaurant owner. Follow all that. Somehow, and this is the part that letter was the letter was unrelated or like disconnected from it was it was about it was about other things. Okay. But it was a letter from the Department of Revenue. The restaurant owner then went to a city council meeting, and this is where I lose the plot slightly. And she says at the city council meeting, hey, the the paper got this letter about me and claims they gave it to a city council member. The paper denies that they gave it to a city council member. Anyway, the paper never published anything about this. But local law enforcement took that as impetus to raid the paper's office. And just about every news organization you've ever heard of has condemned it. As I was reading the story, I was smiled at the mention, well, not smile. My eyebrows went up at the mention of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the KBI, which I only know from In Cold Blood. (laughs) (laughs) They're involved in this story. Then the story took another turn. The owner's mom, so remember, this is the editor. His family owns the paper. 
his mom, who's one of the co-owners of the paper, died. The owner editor blamed the stress of the raid and ran this headline, according to the Times, in the Marion County Record, Illegal Raids Contribute to Death of Newspaper Co-Owner. <laughs> wow. So this is where we are. I don't have a ton to add to that, but I thought we should put it on this podcast somewhere. That yeah. is a wild story. And then comes one final twist. This is from Marissa Cabas in her Substack, The Handbasket. She reports that what has remained unreported until now is that prior to the raids, the newspaper had been actively investigating Gideon Cody, chief of police for the city of Marion. They received multiple tips alleging he'd retired from his previous job to avoid demotion and punishment over alleged sexual misconduct charges. The Times, uh, by the way, called up an expert and asked about raiding newspaper offices. Because this is something we hear about from time to time. And law enforcement doesn't just say, well, hey, we don't like the local paper, but we're going to actually intervene in this particular way. Mm-hmm. And this is a standard the Times, uh, the expert the Times called, spelled out. Federal law allowed the police to search journalists when the authorities have probable cause to believe that journalists had committed a crime unrelated to their journalism. That exception does not apply, however, in a case where the alleged crime is gathering the news. When journalists are suspected of committing crimes as part of news gathering, the government's option is to serve a subpoena, which can be challenged in court before it is enforced. So I learned something there. Can we talk about the practice of obit sweetening? Oh, please. I was reading some stories about the Pac-12, too. The conference formerly known as the Pac-12. Oh, my gosh. People were listing off great Pac-12 athletes of yore. The conference, David, of Reggie Bush. <laughs> the conference of Matt Leinart. The conference of Jackie Robinson. I was at, a, I was at the beach this past week and um, pulled up to a, 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 a restaurant bar just to grab some some food to take to walk out to the beach there was no audio on in there but drew bledsoe was giving what looked to be a tearful obituary <laughs> the conference the of drew bledsoe uh yeah and on one of the channels yeah yeah that's what we're talking about here the conference of gardner Minshew. it was wow. funny because those obits reminded me of the ones in the new york times sports section the <laughs> section of dave anderson yes the section of robert libsite the section david of red smith and the practice we do when something ends like this mm-hmm. is we go back and we find the most golden version of the thing. Yeah. The thing that was at its height. And we said, can you believe that the section of Red Smith is no longer? Yeah. Can you believe the conference of Reggie Bush is no longer a thing? And it's funny because if you say, hey, the conference that had already lost the school Reggie Bush played at. Yeah. <laughs> plus UCLA, which had not figured at all in the national title picture anytime recently. In fact, it's very, very far gone from the days in, when Reggie Bush and Matt Leiner were running things in college football in this country. Mm-hmm. It died. Then, oh, okay. Yeah. That's not as big a surprise. Yeah. But we love to sweeten the obit mm-hmm. by giving the best version of the thing sure it's a great it's a it's a great idea uh to make the obituary sound good um sound significant uh but honestly in a lot of those i'm sure every obituary for an institution is sweetened in that sort of way and a lot of times it's that sweetener that's the reason why the thing is dying right i mean if a long-running tv show if snl had a you know a decade of bad of bad cast and bad sketches they'd say the show that brought us well, Farrell and Steve Martin and Chevy Chase. John Belushi. Yeah. Gilder Rad- oh, yeah, there's so many great names. And you just like, yeah, but they're not on. Right. That's the point. So. Um, right. John Belushi wasn't. And Steve Martin wasn't actually a, a mem- cast member. Right. I got that wrong. I multi-time think it was just a multi-time host. host. Uh, but yeah, it was. a. But yeah, exactly. It, those it, it brought us all these great moments. And, and then, then it stopped bringing us great moments. That's why it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You wouldn't write struggling late night sketch show finally bites the dust. Yeah. You'd write greatest sketch show of all time. And again, it's not wrong to say that. Mm-hmm. It's not wrong. I mean, those, those people did play in the pac 12. Those people were on Saturday night live. 
It's just a funny thing we do to make the moment seem more impactful. It is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's always been done, but it does feel like a very modern, very social media thing to do, right? Just like the, the, you know, the Pac-12 was a problem Twitter video or whatever, <laughs> you know? The Pac-12 was a problem. Washington State quarterbacks were a problem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Drew Bledsoe, it was Ryan Leaf. Gardner Minshew, they were a problem. Uh, in golf news, David, 43-year-old Lucas Glover, his career I know you've been following with some interest, won the FedEx St. Jude Championship over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And Lucas Glover won the week before. Oh, 43-year-old golfer wins two tournaments in a row. Take it away, Jim Nance. Glover goes back to back, including the opening leg of the FedEx Cup playoffs. One for the old guys. The old golfer still got it. Yeah. Golf feels like an old guy still got it. It's an old guy still got it sport. Uh, You know, in our lifetimes, it was a sport you picked up like in retirement, you know? Yeah. and guys like Jack Nicholas, you know, played until, you know, they just sort of retired onto the 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 seniors tour or whatever. But well, he won the Masters of 48. That was like an all time old guy still got a moment. Was he that young? Was he only 48? I think so. In my memory, he was like 65 when he finally said, oh, <laughs> you know, I'll play with the seniors when I'm 100 or whatever. But yeah, well, I think he was still I think he was still going out there for the Masters, but I think he won the Masters of 48. Oh, OK. Yeah. So that was that was an old guy still got a moment. Here we have a 43-year-old. So you can win. You can win at golf later in life. Yeah. So that makes it that makes it very a very old guy's happy sport. Well, excuse for the me. sake of the old guy still got breaking it. Breaking news, Jack Nich- Jack Nicholas was 46. Sheesh. Thanks to our pal Steven Shepard for sending that along. Do you want some uh, travel notes from Scandinavia? Always, yeah. So I'm I'm coming to you from Copenhagen today. That was Copenhagen. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now you no tell idea. me. <laughs> <laughs> On my way to uh, corporate activities in Spotify. First of all, I thought you were going to be here. Oh, I had sight. this whole week laid out for us here. Bookshops of Copenhagen, Hagen. I had meatballs stands lined up. I have hot dogs. This country loves hot dogs, by the way. Which is why I am all in on Denmark. Let me tell you something, baby. I have eaten a ton of hot dogs this week, but I keep writing down things I wanted to tell you uh, in lieu of actually pointing across the picturesque town square to show you in person. Appreciate appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, One is that um, find yourself someone who loves you like Copenhagen loves Hans Christian Andersen, (laughs) the beloved writer of fairy tales. I have counted no less than three giant statues of Hans Christian Andersen as I walked around the city. I took a tour, a walking tour of Copenhagen the other day with this man named Richard Carpen, a lovely tour guide who was recommended in my Rick Steves guide. And he arrived dressed completely head to toe as Hans Christian Andersen. How does one dress as Hans Christian Andersen? Well, there's a stovepipe hat. And then there's kind of a dark suit, but with a long coat on top. But is there anything specific to Hans about it? Did he have a, <laughs> Did he have any particular flourish of his own? You're saying, have I dipped into the Hans Christian Andersen biography since I've been here to the, so I can identify some ticks? <laughs> no, some... just like a, like the like the like the Ben Franklin impersonator has that distinctive bald head with the long hair. Like, is there a way that you oh. would pick him out from other? I guess if he's the only guy with statues, and there's no need, but. Well, just judging by the statues, he looked pretty. He looked pretty close, I guess. <laughs> he was also portraying Hans Christian Andersen, so he was talking in the first person about like my fairy tales or this, my fairy tales or that. It was a fascinating tour. I absolutely loved it. Uh, note number two for you: I've spent some time, and I know this will come as a surprise, in bookstores here in Copenhagen. It is so funny to walk into a bookstore go to the table where they have everything laid out and see that it's Jennifer Egan, Sally Rooney, Stella Maris by Cormac McCarthy. It's all the books that are laid out 
at the table in the American bookstore. Uh-huh. There was this universal language of the bookstore table. Yes. I've never felt more at home. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, here we are. All the bookstores here and the new bookstores have incredibly large English language sections, which are themselves probably better than a great number of American bookstores. Just yeah. the, again, just the non-Danish part of the Danish bookstore is unbelievably good. I also would love to uh, call on your connections in the book world to get something going here, which is every time I go to a bookstore in England, and since I've been here, they have hardback books. Uh-huh. And then the paperback comes out, and the paperback book is almost the exact dimensions of the hardback. Oh, okay, yeah. Almost like a galley copy mm-hmm. would be in the United States. Can we get American publishers to start making paperbacks that have the same size and heft of the hardback? You prefer like a six by nine trim size on your paperbacks? Uh, I think it's cool. I, I would prefer a smaller book in hard in hardcover, but it's a, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a there is a there is a long consumer history aspect to that whole thing. Uh, I don't know why they're bigger in the UK, although and here, some, huh? And Denmark, oh, sorry, it, it I mean, sorry, right. I don't know why they're 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 bigger all over Europe. Although in some instances, it's because they just cut the hardcovers off and stick paperback covers on them when they haven't sold very well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how it works in the in the US too. But who knows? Otherwise, that's all I got. Eating some amazing open-faced sandwiches. Uh, ate herring, ate more herring than I ever have in my entire life. I texted <laughs> Alan Siegel, who's on his way here, and I said, get ready for the herring, buddy. I hope you know what you're getting into. Speaking of delicacies, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about a nacho cheese spill in Arkansas was Worst queso scenario. So good. Today's headline comes from Eric Raskin. It's from The Hill. Adam Schiff, David, the Democratic representative from California, is pushing for a new postage stamp. He wants a stamp of Leonard Nimoy, the legendary actor who played Mr. Spock on Star Trek and even better directed Three Men and a Baby. Now, Adam Schiff is running for Senate. So I don't know any cheaper pop than asking for a stamp of Leonard Nimoy. (laughs) What a way to get everybody to like you. But Leonard Nimoy, the stamp. I think that's all you need. What was the Hills strain pun headline? Uh, Post. uh, I mean, what it's live long and prosper Mm -hmm. postage live long and. um, uh, Live long and prosper. But it's. Ship long, uh, uh, <laughs> give, uh, um, is a postage stamp. Oh, lick long and prosper. Yeah, we, that's we don't terrible. Lick them that's, anymore. that's kind of disgusting, but go ahead. That's great. We <laughs> and we don't lick stamps anymore. No, but even so, lick long and prosper. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. Shoemaker and I return next Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.